This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Colonization and genocide are ongoing processes that continue to this day. Sovereignty was never ceded, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hey, hey, welcome back to Ozpol Snack Pod, the podcast that is kind of like bananas. There's a bunch of us hanging out. That's right. This is Ozpol Snack Pod, the weekly left wing Australian news, politics, and meme podcast uh, that is also the official podcast of the Ozpol Shitposting Facebook group. So if you like memes, you like Australian politics, head on over there, join the group. Uh, my name is Noon, and with me, as always, is my co host. Hey, what's up? Zach Snack. And uh, with us, we've got a very special guest, a friend, confidant, member of Arana Sanctum. Uh, Noon and I were both best men at his wedding. Uh, he's really like the third, the third piece of the puzzle here. We've got our very good friend, Lewis. Welcome to the show, Lou. Ah, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, nice to be the not-so-silent partner anymore. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on. It's been uh, a long time coming. And I'd like uh, to point out, you weren't just best men at my wedding. You also conducted the ceremony and played in the wedding band and uh, had the late night DJ slot. So uh, it was a busy weekend for me, but, you know, everybody had a good time. Um, Lou is first and foremost uh, our good friend who we like went to high school with and lived very, with. Very long term, deep. Snackpod fans will recall we've mentioned him several times, uh, particularly in the interview ones where we interviewed each other like uh, early on. Uh, Lou really is the reason I got into Ozpol. I tried to teach him how to do cryptic crosswords, and uh, he um, like read taught you the how paper to play Counter Strike at me and taught me how to play Counter Strike. Yes, but yes, so you know, yeah, um, real cultural exchange. Yes, Lou is also a former Vice contributor who I believe is still owed money. By Vice, is that correct? I think it's Noon is owed money because he got something published and never got paid. My beef with them is they pitched me articles which I wrote and sent to them and then they never responded, which I guess mm. is the same as not being paid, but a slightly <laughs> different type of graft. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, either way, you're not getting the money. Oh, absolutely not. But yeah, so uh, this is a Bronana's episode because, you know, all of us bros are... In, in the studio together, as it were. And we're also going to be recording the bonus episode together this week, uh, which is we're going to listen to uh, Tony Abbott's new podcast, Heartland. Australia's uh, which, Heartland. Australia's Heartland, sorry, yes. Which <laughs> yeah. uh, no doubt will um, be a, a, a thrilling and enlightening experience for all of us. Um, and you can listen to that bonus episode if you support the show over on patreon.com forward slash Snackpot For $1 a month, you get access to our Discord, and you get a monthly bonus episode, and you get some other cool stuff at higher tiers. So head on over there and help us support the show. And I just thought we haven't said this for a while. Um, one of the really big things that we spend money on is paying someone to transcribe our episodes. So if you want to read the show instead of listening to it, you can do it at www.ozpolsnackpod.com. Dot com. And we have a bunch of new patrons this week, like a really unreasonably yeah, it was huge a number week. of new patrons. I don't really know what happened, but it's great. Thank so, you all so much. Yeah, we, we've got to send big shout-outs shout to uh, Le Hola. Mm -hmm. which uh, is, yep. <laughs> yeah, also to Rana and Zan. And Peter, Lucinda, uh, and of course the big one. Yeah, that's right. It was Milk Boy. We finally Milk Boy. got Milk Boy, a.k.a. Young Milky. 
aka the Schmilky Bar Kid. Thank you very yeah. much for signing up, Sergeant Milko. We appreciate it very much. And also shouts to Jesse who increased their pledge to six dollars and ninety cents. Uh, nice. So before we get into the show, uh, we're going to talk about a couple of things that we're not talking about this week. So uh, NDIS fuckery, one of our favorite stories. Uh, there was a bunch of it. Not going to talk about it. Uh, OnlyFans is banning sex. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, there was that meme after Tumblr banned mm. sex, and it's like Will Smith walking into an empty room and looking around. Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> yep, but we're not going to be talking about that, and we're also not going to be talking about uh, the trial of Zachary Rolfe, the uh, cop who allegedly murdered a young child in the Northern Territory. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, we'll kick it off by uh, discussing one of our favourite topics here. On Ospol Snack Pod, which is Nazis. Positivity um, you sure that I was often... the right sting to use? There, <laughs> you really Unfortunately, see... yeah, yes. you're seeing how the sausage gets made here. <laughs> the infiltration <laughs> has gone deeper than we thought. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, you do have a shaved head. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Noon and I often struggle to find. Uh, positive news story uh this was a bad week week for it was not a good week for positive news but one we you know one one sort of positive thing is that yeah nine the nine fairfax papers and uh 60 minutes released a joint investigation this week on australia's neo-nazi movement and now a bunch of nazis are shit scared so that's i think we can all agree that's a positive thing um the fact that there are well-organized nazis you know, kicking around. That's less That's, positive. This is sort of uh, kind of the... Uh, similar to a lot of our positivity corners. It was like, yeah, some great protests going on against a fucked against situation. Against really bad stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But look, it's a, little, it's a little shining light. Um, So this was an investigation published by uh, journalists Nick McKim and Joel Tozer, who've been doing a lot of reporting on Australia's far right for a while. But this week they dropped, like, uh, the big daddy... Peace, which is an in-depth investigation uh, into the National Socialist Network, which is based on video and audio covertly recorded by a mole within the National Socialist Network, which is, like, huge yeah. and also fucking terrifying to think mm-hmm. about. Like, there are some really hair-raising descriptions of this undercover investigator sitting in his car just, like, sweating and psyching himself up to go and, like, infiltrate a Nazi game, murdered. which is... Yeah kind of mind-boggling to think about uh but also uh important to note here that the journalists got a lot of help from the white rose society which is Mm. uh, a group of anti-fascist researchers here in so-called australia and so i reckon that has a lot to do with why this reporting turned out as good as it did um so want to make sure that those anti-fascists get the credit that they're due so um lou how much do you know about the national socialist network and and tom sewell their leader uh I mean, I know that they have an ethos at sort of sorts at their <laughs> core. Uh, and I know they kind of alternate between being like ramshackle and pathetic and juvenile until you see like a group of 30 or 40 or 50 of them standing together. And then uh, it suddenly, yeah, looks a lot more sinister. Yeah, well, that's uh, I, they'd be really glad to hear you say that because that's exactly why they get all of them in one place and dress up in black mm. and seek hail and burn crosses and go for bushwalks together and that kind of thing. 
Uh, but yeah, if you're not familiar, listener, the National Socialist Network is really like Australia's premier Nazi gang, and Tom Sewell is slash potentially was their head. He's in jail uh, currently on assault charges for attacking some people at the car park at the base of a bushwalk, um, which I only realized today that was actually at Sugarloaf Mountain, where Noon Lu and I once went on a totally non-Nazi bushwalk together, mm. um, which is, yeah, very strange. Um, yeah, so Sewell's been uh, in custody for a while. He was denied bail because, um, according to the detective senior constable at his trial, this is how he described himself. And I quote, I'm a political soldier for the white race and Adolf Hitler is my leader. So, yeah, they decided not to let him back onto the streets, which I think is, you know. A surprisingly good call for a big <laughs> poll. Yeah, I yeah. don't often cite police in a positive way in a story about Nazis, but here we are. Uh, so, yeah, the evidence turned up by this undercover investigator uh, in this piece shows that the National Socialist Network are prepping for race war. They're doing combat training and doing lots of networking with international white supremacist cells. But this is stuff that we pretty much already knew. Um, anybody who's kind of who pays attention to this stuff, uh, you know, this isn't surprising. But what is new about this investigation is the level of detail mm. about exactly who is in the inner circle of the yeah they uncovered the names of a bunch of people who are known by like you know white boy 88 or whatever on telegram and yeah lots of it's like oh yeah German... this is paul kaczynski a former plumber or whatever yeah yeah exactly so yeah one of the like features of the um th there was this, the i didn't watch the 60 minutes piece because eh, you know i just read i just read the article but one of the features in it is a little like interactive grid where they you can click on the faces of all the people that have been identified <laughs> and it tells you what they do in the National Socialist Network and often what their jobs are. Mm. Um, and whether like, or not they have access to firearms. That's yeah, or security licenses. Yeah. yeah, security licenses, yeah. Yeah, which is obviously um, alarming. Um, yeah, there was a line in it like Vic Pohl confirmed that he had an active security license for some reason. Well, there was some line in it that was kind of like weirdly softened by like, yeah, yeah for in, some I think reason. Inexplicably. Well, yeah, this shouldn't be, but uh he does it's, have it. It's right there in black and white. Um and yeah, it was uh pointed out by anti fascist uh, commentator Cam Smith on Twitter that one of the core members of the group was also at one point elected to the uh, RMIT Liberal Club Committee. That's a university here in Victoria, for those who are not familiar. So, yeah, kind of weird how the liberals and the nationals keep getting infiltrated by neo-Nazis, huh? Anyway, um, this... I mean, the like... neo-Nazis would claim that they're getting infiltrated by the liberals and nationals, but... Well, it's all a matter of perspective. <laughs> it's like that, you know, they're like, oh, is um, Superman actually... Uh, Peter Parker, I never see them in the same room at the same time. But with these guys, you do see them in the same room at the same time. I don't, I'm, I'm well, not you, sure. What... You could see Peter Parker and Superman, but that's, we're not, we don't need to get into that. Spider-Man, fuck me. <laughs> I don't... Noon, honestly, that's a great mistake to me. I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you. What's Superman's name? Doesn't matter. Clark Kent. It's not thank important. Thank you, thank you. Yep. Um, although he is, you know, Clark area, Kenneth area, Kent. King. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, but look, this unmasking and, and publishing of these guys' identities is really crucial, and I think it's what sets this reporting apart from a lot of other journalism on neo-Nazis. This shit is exactly what the Nazis don't want. And really good evidence of this mm. is that the National Socialist Network and Tom Sewell's independent Telegram channels, which is, you know, an encrypted messaging service, 
where they all hang out because they've been kicked off all the mainstream social media networks. Those channels have lost subscribers since the invest- this investigation was published, mm. which is in stark contrast to, for example, the current affair story on Tom Saul from earlier this year, which right. massively swelled Tom Saul's follower numbers. So, peop- you know, n- uh, neo-Nazis and people who were thinking about becoming neo-Nazis saw this report and shit their pants and were like, fuck, I need to, like, remove myself from this network, which is basically That's the best shit. thing you can hope for from reporting like this. Yeah. Um, yeah, the piece... It demonstrates as well that not only have the National Socialist Network been thoroughly infiltrated and have journalists breathing down their necks, but they're also being heavily surveilled by the feds. And ASIO has been stepping up over the past year or so their rhetoric around like, oh, we're actually really worried about white supremacists. Uh, Mike Burgess or whoever it is from uh, ASIO said that, yeah, more than half of their time is spent on white supremacist gangs at the moment, Um, which... Good. Wasn't yeah, there mean, something in the reporting about the undercover journalists like accidentally bumping into ASIO officers on stakeout? Yes, totally. and actually, I have the relevant quote right here. A few days later, the neo-Nazi insider tells us Sewell is off to New South Wales and then Queensland to hold in-person meetings in pubs with other leaders and new recruits. And so as Sewell travels up Australia's east coast in February, meeting dozens of people in New South Wales and Queensland... We arranged for several sets of eyes to observe him and take photos. The Age, the Herald, and 60 Minutes are not the only ones interested in these East Coast meetings, though. Counter-terror police later contact our team, having spotted them secretly taking photos. They, too, have been watching. Uh, so this, like, this whole like convoy of people following <laughs> Tom Saul up the coast, just like recording him and taking photos and stuff, which is, yeah... A funny image. Yeah, um, the awkward moment when there are more people on the stakeout than there are in the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is a guaranteed fact. That's that's hard fucking. That's hard fact. Um, the other uh, sort of notable through line of this piece that I found interesting is is how it kind of characterizes the National Socialist Network and uh, as Lou, you kind of mentioned earlier that they kind of you know th- their public image sort of oscillates between being this pathetic pack of losers in cargo shorts versus like a dangerous, uh, you know, accelerationist warmongering terror cell. And that's, you know, got a lot to do with the propaganda that they themselves put out, you know? Um, and so Nick McKim and Joel Tozer, they do take these guys seriously as a potential threat, but the way that they like expose and, and describe the everyday workings of the group really kind of demystifies them and also refuses to buy into this like uh, projected strength that the the National Socialist Network likes to kind of adopt. So the reporting doesn't treat them as like big, powerful Ubermensch. It's like it, these are a bunch of fuckheads in a suburban house in Melbourne with a little portrait of Hitler on the breakfast table and no bread is allowed in the Nazi house because Tom Sewell is worried about carbs. Um, and the other thing that is, this piece also makes super clear, which is, again, this isn't news to people who follow this stuff, but, like, so many of the guys involved in this stuff are basically children. Like, these kids yeah. are, are getting recruited at, like, age 16. I mean, this is it's just grooming. And it's that's crucial to their operations, that they are, like, indoctrinating these teenage boys, essentially, like, as early as possible, which is deeply fucking disturbing and gross behavior, obviously. Um, but, yeah. Uh, on Go the on. subject of teenage boys, 
one thing that really stuck to me in this reporting is the diction of their like communications and the things they write um, to each other and leave lying around. Mm. It really takes me back to like gross teenage high school shit um, mm. in a way that I found like very striking. Um, yeah, it's what like, sort it, of thing? It, like it's got real 4chan energy, basically. Mm. I mean, I, that that photo of them planning to pick up Jewish women was very like gross. It's, it's, yeah, it's edgy dude. high school humor. Yeah, edgy and, high school bullshit. Yeah, and but, basically they've taken it to this extra level, and you know they're vulnerable then to being indoctrinated into. The, I mean, the National Socialist Network is run like a cult, with Tom Sewell as the kind of charismatic, charismatic leader. Although some people's definition of charismatic might differ from no, mine. Hitler. Yeah, but he's, you know, like he he's up there speechifying and riling everybody up and talking about, you know, the future of the white race and all that. But it's like, yeah, this internet humor is a gateway into that and mm-hmm. that's it's clearly encouraged within the network as well, which I, you know, as you say noon there's this photo of this, you know, it's basically like a a fucked Nazi meme about sleeping with Jewish women, you know, we don't need to go into the details, yeah, but yeah. <clears throat> that very much gives the flavor of what it's like. But then there's this also this, yeah, this Hitler wannabe kind of at the head of the room, kind of pounding his fist on the table. Very fucking weird shit. Anyway, mm, mm. so this report does seem to have thoroughly fucking rattled the Nazis, which, as I said, is really the best thing you can hope for from reporting like this, in my opinion. And um, props again to White Rose Society for being, you know, providing so much of the background for this. Um, but I will say this isn't the end of the story, you know. Um, a follow-up piece was published this week with even more undercover footage showing that the former leader of this... Uh, you, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Jared Searby. He's the the head of the Proud Boys chapter on the Victorian New South Wales border. Um, right. Oh, they yeah, call I themselves Proud Boys, Proud Boys Borderlands. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, he looks kind of like someone out of a fucking Friendly Geordie sketch. Like, he's got face tats and dreadlocks, but he's also got male pattern baldness at the same time. It's quite a cocktail anyway he is seems to be seeing this like vacuum in the national socialist network leadership left by tom Sewell going to prison as like his opportunity to just step up um if you want to know more about that guy um go and check out the work of yeah nah on youtube can't recommend that highly enough there you can see jared cb doing lots of raps and um other embarrassing stuff uh and the there was one other piece that the age published this week which um identifies the head of the base in Australia, um, the base is like a very notorious international neo-Nazi network. They're accelerationists, uh, and they've identified the guy who like is the their head recruiter in Australia. And again, turns out he's just a tradie living in Perth with his parents. Like, uh, but you know, these guys have you know they're kind of they're decentralized. There's many different organizations. They're all recruiting children. Um, so yeah, you know these guys are active and they do pose a risk, but I think what this shows is that good, solid researching by anti-fascists, good work by journalists who are willing to collaborate with those anti-fascists means that it is possible to really fuck these guys' operations up. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, overall, I would call that a positivity corner to an extent. Look, it's trying times, and I appreciate that you made, you know, an effort. You stretched a bit. You found something positive. Maybe. <laughs> totally. We, we want to offer a glimmer where we can in these trying times. But you know what has been an unbridled positivity corner this week has been 
Shitpost of the week. And there, there's a couple. We've got a we've got a shitpost of the week of our hearts first, and um, this is actually one that you kind of kicked off, Zach. Yeah, that's why I couldn't give it shitpost of the week because you know I, I made the first one. But last week I mentioned uh, that Senator Rex Patrick, Independent Senator Rex Patrick, or you know Rex Patrick of the Rex Patrick team, formerly of Center Alliance, formerly of Nick Xenophon team. Uh, AKA Inspector Rex. Uh, I just found it so fucking funny how much he loves submarines and always wants to talk about submarines all the time. And then I found out that he literally wore a submarine costume into Parliament. It's this big, like, core flute submarine that says, uh, save our 700 sub jobs, because he wants submarines to be made here in Australia. Uh, and it says it, it's got a little periscope on it, and in tiny writing <laughs> is written Senator Rex Patrick, which is it's just really cute. Anyway, it's, it's useful because it's he's impossible to recognize. Either. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, for me at any time, but I feel like the submarine really, you know, he it looks doesn't kind help. Of P- Clive Palmery in the face there, but anyway, it doesn't matter. He's got the most miscellaneous middle-aged white guy face of any politician in Australia, and that is really, really saying something. Like there is tough competition for that. Well, hence putting his name on it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) For a second, when I first saw the image, I was like, wait, Nick Xenophon's back in Parliament? (laughs) Um, We've been watching the X-Files season one recently, and um, uh, often, you know, there's a lot of, like, you know, monsters that steal people's faces, shape-shifting monsters... People, whatever, whatever. And so anyway, this this professor died. And then there's, you know, a shot of the next day, someone going on, oh, what happened here? And I thought it was the same guy. And I, <laughs> I thought it had, he had come back to life or whatever, because it's the X-Files. Um, but no, it was just another scientist. But um... the, the pitfalls of trying to watch network TV with face blindness. Yeah. A relatable experience. Um, but back to this meme. Uh, it just looks this this submarine costume just seemed to me to be a really obvious candidate for a meme template. So I made one. I posted it in the Ospol shitposting group, and it really took off in a way that uh, was really satisfying yeah. to see. So we wanted to shout out a few of our favorites. Yeah. So there was Kaya uh, and Ethan, who both did you know um, uh, blotting out letters on Zach's original meme. So Kaya, uh, when I try to pick up saying I'm long, hard, and full of semen, it risky and ethan uh the room if it was set in a british submarine hello mark uh liam gets a bit meta with i don't have a joke i just wanted to join in (laughs) which is kind of what my original one was as well i just wrote i just really love submarines okay which isn't much of it i mean that's clearly what (laughs) rex patrick was already saying with that suit but anyway also noon i liked yours uh a lot of questions being raised about my submarine costume that are already answered by my submarine costume. Yeah, and in a very similar vein, Ethan's. Are there any questions? Keep in mind that I have already addressed the submarine costume. <laughs> uh, just Ethan, shoutouts for the constant and unrelenting background Simpsons references. I I really appreciate it. Many many bonus points your way, my friend. So I know that you're not allowed to have props in Parliament. Does yeah. anyone know what the origin of that rule is? Because uh, there mean, must have been some absolutely foul incident where everyone was like, all right, all right, no more fucking props. I mean, I don't know where it came from, but I do know that Rex Patrick got thoroughly fucking yelled at by the speaker for this stunt. And the speaker was literally like, 
Get out! You are embarrassing yourself! Um, well, that's true, but that's, that's no reason the whole to point. kick him out of Parliament. I mean, <laughs> surely that's... What the whole point of Parliament is? Yeah, how are you going to hold fast to that standard? <laughs> I mean, how strictly enforced is this rule? Like, does the security at the front of the building screen the politicians as they come through? <laughs> how did he get the how cool get flute that fucking costume <laughs> <laughs> a lot of that questions, a very good question. not that many That's answers. A topic for a deep dive. What was uh, the original stunt that ruined it for everybody else? Okay. Speaking of Simpsons references, Noon, we have an actual shit post of the week. Yes, and we don't actually know who made this, but the layup assist goes to Holly, of course, a uh, friend, confidant member of our inner sanctums, and uh, multiple time co host on the show and host of uh, Every Second Weekend. That's right. Uh, uh, and co host of Zach's Life, as he likes to also say. Also true. <laughs> The joke uh, that nobody liked the first time and less and less people like it every time I make it. Yeah. The B sharps, yeah. Um <laughs> so this is uh uh it's the one where school is cancelled and um uh, uh Bart is outside flying a kite at night and Marge is leaning out the window talking to Homer and says, There's something about flying a kite at night that so spreads the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> and then Bart Hello, up. mother dear. <laughs> wow, that's a really good creepy Bart voice. That's Thank great. you. I watched the clip last night. <laughs> it also has the great joke. Uh, in this house, we obey the laws of thermodynamics. Which I use it in multiple memes that I've made. I, I love that one, yes. But that's probably a nice segue, uh, kite flying spreading the coronavirus, into our next segment. Hey man, I got some more beers. Oh, I don't know if I can drink anymore. I'm feeling kind of sick. No, come on, we're having another round of Coronas. Yes, so unfortunately we're all having another round of Coronas. Uh, I'm going to do a bit of a roundup, but yes, in relation to the shitpost situation, playgrounds in Victoria and the Bankstown LGA in Sydney have been closed as part of lockdown measures. Uh, Sorry, playgrounds in Melbourne, I think, specifically. Uh, And there's been a lot of debate about this for a variety of reasons. So, um... People who are against this say, first, we don't know that there's actually been any transmission of the virus in playgrounds, so we don't know if it'll make a difference, so why would we do this? Uh, and a common stat that people have been quoting is that 75% of uh, transmission, virus transmission happens at home, which, okay, but there's another 25% there that sort of definitionally, definitionally has to happen not at first. home. First. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, Before it can be in the home. Look, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm just saying... I'm not sure that stat is really a convincing argument. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, but second, uh, people are very worried about children's mental health stuck at home during a pandemic. And um, I think this is really important, and kids need to meet other people, and they need to exercise, and they need to see the world, and they need to experience things and play and all sorts of things. But I find it really difficult to figure out how to incorporate the whole mental health stuff into my analysis of the situation. Mm. So... um, this is not about kids, but like, you know, we've talked about this before, Zach, about people being like, we need to let people go to work for their mental health. And you said, all right, but if we take that one step further, you know, why do people have worse mental health when they don't go to work? And it's because everyone's life falls apart if you can't afford to pay bills because our entire society is based around having to pay to stay alive. Yeah. No, no, Um, no, no. It's the water cooler conversation. It's the it's, it's the forty five minute commute that keeps people on the fucking level. That's what it is. Just it's having deeply to deal with... meaningful part of my existence, having to scrub toilets 
for Goldman Sachs. Um, I mean, my mental health just falls apart when I can't go into the office. Oh, look, and if you like going to work, hey, look, no shame. That's fine. But yeah, I yeah, think yeah. probably it's mostly the lack of money thing that is bad. Yeah. And that we like, yeah, culturally shame people for it and whatever, whatever. Um, and yes, so it, of course, it's different with kids. But again, I just kind of find it hard to know how to like think about mental health relative to other issues here like surely it would be really bad for those kids mental health if they fucking caught coronavirus at the playground and then their parents get sick or whatever like i'm not saying i like i'm not weighing in on it one way or the other i'm just saying i i find that argument again i don't i I literally don't know what to make of that one way or the other um and i do think it's different for children but again not sure how that comes into it so yeah it does feel very in line with like all of these other punitive measures that go- that state governments have been bringing in, like yeah. in lieu of actually giving people the financial material support mm-hmm. that they need. Being like, no, we're taking away your basketball hoops. And it's like, right, right. Is this really the best lever you have to pull right now? Because I just don't. I mean, maybe COVID sticks to basketballs extra well because they've got that dimpled surface or something, but. I haven't seen the science on that. I mean, I think it is, broadly speaking, a matter of perception. Like, it is clear, both anecdotally and statistically, that compliance is declining. Mm. And I get my take on it is that, like, if you go out and you see people playing basketball or people hanging out in a playground, you kind of feel like you're not in a pandemic. Um, and that's what they want to try and crack down right, on. They right. want everyone to remember that they're in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why people have gotten so upset about it. They're like, you're taking away that one thing that let me forget that I was in a pandemic. Yeah. That like, yeah, yeah totally normal life. Um, yeah, but they've been pretty explicit about that. Like the curfew here in Victoria, which basically has little to no basis in health policy or evidence but they were they were it was suggested by the public health team not even by the cops this time around because they were like we need to send the message that this is serious right and uh yeah i think that's probably a fucked reason to do stuff well personally i well it's not ideal but if it worked that might be one thing right like well then it would be based in science then it would reduce like then 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 we'd be having a different conversation um but like i i don't think these sorts of restrictions are how you improve compliance and i think it's what fucking everyone has been saying this whole fucking time is it's paying people to stay home that will do it um and having an adequate vaccine supply that will do it um i also think yep i've got kind of two threads with the clearly reduced compliance Mm. one is that the political messaging has clearly fallen apart um and i think it's very hard to get people to get on board with a project when they see rot at the top Mm. um and the other thing is that it seems like enforcement is no longer visible and there's this theory going around that the cops are chucking a hissy fit because a bunch of the fines got excused after our last pandemic. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, a lot of them were unpaid, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of them, there was a plan to cancel all the ones for, like, teenagers and vulnerable people. Um, and the rumor I've heard through some public services types is, yeah, the cops are, like, 
have been chucking a hissy fit and refusing to do enforcement because they're upset that the fines they issued last time got annulled. I mean, what the fuck is it to you? You've already done your job. You've you've written the ticket. Like, it's like someone said this to me years ago about Centrelink people, but like uh, Centrelink stuff. But it's like it's they feel like the money's coming out of their paycheck. Um, <laughs> And like that wasn't the point of the enforcement wasn't to punish people. It was to try and like make force a behavior change. If the behavior change was achieved, which it was last time, then like, it doesn't matter at the end of the day, whether or not the punishments happened. Yeah. Which, yeah, that's a good point. Yep. uh, It's a real disturbing insight into how the, uh, the police mind works mm-hmm. yeah it is this is where i mean we are, we're talking about cop logic here and cop logic sort of infecting uh the logic that is being used by the public health team and state governments mm-hmm. at large but yep. i mean that's you know that's been an observable trend for a long time just sort of accelerated by covid well uh yeah i, I might move on to just sort of a bit more of a general COVID update uh which you know no one will be surprised to hear that it's bad. Um, as usual, I don't think it's super valuable to give exact numbers on the show that will have changed by the time that you are listening to this, dear listener. Um, but there are hundreds of cases in New South Wales and dozens in Victoria and a handful in the rest of the country. Uh, Western Australia is going to ban even Western Australia residents from going back home after Thursday, even on grounds of compassion. Uh, so if you want to go back to Western Australia... Before the end of the pandemic, you should probably go now. Oh, yeah. Please don't take any legal or medical advice from SnackPod. Uh, That's an important disclaimer. It is an important disclaimer, uh, including that piece of advice that I just gave you. This is me musing and speculating based on articles I've read. But it, this is a you might want riffing to riffing with into complete and total indemnity and unaccountability. Uh, I asked Bagel, my dog, who he has a law degree, and he said that this should cover us. So, um, I always knew there was something I didn't like about him. Uh, so experts, uh, like Norman Swan, for example, are saying that the New South Wales outbreak is essentially impossible to contain. So giving a a sad (laughs) thumbs up to the microphone. Um, yeah. So at this point, getting people vaccinated is essentially the only option in New South Wales and New South Wales is still the highest risk to the rest of the country, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago when I reluctantly said that I agree that we should prioritize new south wales for vaccines which is annoying but is probably the best option at this point just out of curiosity what's uh the vax status among members of the show uh halfway done uh well noon's halfway done and i am booked in to be halfway done so we are at 25 percent right now what about uh, you lou i'm halfway done there you nice. go so we're 50 percent overall... vaccinated uh 50%, no, 50% well, like, vaccinated one third vaccinated yeah, two thirds, fifty percent. People don't come to this show for simple mathematics. No, uh, they come but, uh, to see us flagrantly fuck up the simplest of of sums. One over three. <laughs> um, okay, so so. Whoa, uh, whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs> uh, slow down, okay? Yeah. So Sydney's lockdown has been extended to the end of September, at least. Uh, and today, Saturday the 21st, which is the day we're recording this episode, uh, saw police banning people to come into the Sydney CBD uh, for an anti-lockdown protest, basically, or to prevent an anti-lockdown protest happening. Mm. Uh, Tom Tanaki did a video about it. You should go watch it. Uh, it's good. 
Um, but yeah, so they have cancelled all trains and buses coming into the city between 9am and 3pm and have banned seven transport companies, presumably meaning taxi companies and Uber and DD or whatever, uh, from taking people into the CBD during that time, which is all to try and stop this, yeah, anti-lockdown wow. protest. That, that's uh, kind of unprecedented, isn't it's it? It's super cooked. Yeah, uh, Jesus I don't Christ. know of any precedent. I, I think maybe they did something similar with trains for BLM, but I'm not 100% about that. Maybe mm. maybe misremembering that. I caught a train in, so they couldn't have. Yeah, um, they, New um... South Wales cops kettled people in town hall station that's what mm. i was about to say yeah i'm pretty yeah. sure they stopped the train going all the way through and right. then when people got off the train there were the new south wales police waiting to brutalize them yeah. yeah um yeah and indeed there will be 1500 extra cops in the cbd uh and who will hand out fines as much as one hundred thousand dollars per person uh and potentially charges and arrests to people who turn up to protest oh god yeah that's bad um like I, I, I think I, yeah, the problem clearly has been it's just not enough cops. Yeah, yeah, they've just been so effective in reducing the spread thus far. Yeah, and you know, honestly, I wonder how many cops are COVID truthers because they clearly aren't wearing their masks very reliably. And, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, but this does seem like one of those odd situations where the cops aren't on the same side as the reactionary protesters. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the anti-lockdown protesters do have like a very explicit anti-police sentiment. So. You know, mm. like here in Victoria, there's the, uh, oh God, what are they called? I can't remember. But there the... is this special little squad whose like explicit mission is to um, fight cops. They got their wish and um, the results were very predictable. Um, but <laughs> it makes sense to me that there is some opposition there. Yeah. Um, just on the note of Sydney cops being fucked, uh, they've been, you know, harassing the citizens of Western Sydney and those... Um... LGAs of concern in pretty extreme and cooked ways. Uh, one rumor that I've heard that I couldn't find a source for when I was writing the notes uh, was that they were uh, repeatedly door knocking someone who to see where their father was when he had died in hospital from coronavirus earlier that week. Okay. Um, but again, couldn't find a source for that while I was looking at these notes. But um, I they will sent finish... the horse squad in there a few weeks back, didn't they? Uh, yeah, to play polo with people browsing in uh, coals. Um, th so that's me exaggerating uh, as a joke, but yeah, no, they had uh, mounted cops to, yeah. For what yeah, reason? To scare yeah. the virus. COVID no, that's is, right. That's is... right. We figured out they had canisters of hand sanitizer up the nose. We, we, we've already we been figured it out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how can you give someone an infringement when you're riding a horse? That's what I want to know. Uh, just the hoof is normally a pretty effective. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but I, I wanted to finish up this segment with a extended quote from a Guardian article about uh, what the cops have been doing in Western Sydney. So, Rabia Dib says his mother is afraid to sit in her front yard since police knocked on the door of the house after 10pm one night to check who was inside. Dib, who lives in a flat behind his parents' house, says police who came to the door one night last week told his father they had received a complaint about his children playing in the front yard. They were getting complaints that there were kids out the front and so on. My dad kindly said to him that obviously my son lives out the back and he's got two kids and obviously they come and play out the front. We actually never have had police knock on our door before. It's honestly quite disturbing, especially for them to do so so late at night. You know, you panic at the time. My mum was quite shocked about it and she's actually now afraid to sit in her own front yard. And we're not criminals or troublemakers, but we feel intimidated. Okay, so they've been repeatedly hassling them because their own kids were playing in their own property. Yep. 
Malaz Majani says police have knocked on his door every day since he and his family tested positive for COVID. He says they they told him they were performing compliance checks, but they were always fumbling with papers and without a clear idea of what's going on. His whole family, including his pregnant wife and four children, have had the virus since Sunday. He says he has been confined to bed for the days with the absolutely brutal illness. He says New South Wales Health has called the family once, but he's been bombarded with calls and visits from police. Every morning we get calls from the police, and every morning it's a different story. Today they called and asked to speak to the one-year-old. On the first day they called my phone twice. I didn't answer as I was very sick. Other times they call and ask for individuals to go out to the balcony and wave to them. He says in one of the first visits from police, they demanded to see him at the door to ask long-winded questions, and he collapsed, unable to stand because of the illness. I have anxiety every morning and worrying about the police visit. What if I miss their call? What will they ask for? Who will they ask for? Visits as such to a sick, young, vulnerable family play no role in reducing case numbers. So, sorry, I know that's quite a long piece, but I just, like, the... It's, it's harassment and targeted abuse against a racial minority in a poor, like, increasingly deliberately ghettoized neighborhood. Like, that. Yeah. this is... They're, they're doing that deliberately. It's horrifying. Um, and I just wanted to, yeah, get... Yeah. Yeah. yeah those stories out, yeah. Really disturbing stuff. Thanks for taking us through that, Noon. And um, we'll move into our First Nations story now, which is really a continuation of uh, the corona discussion because COVID has now spread into Western New South Wales with just under 200 cases in rural towns over the last month, including a regional centre, Dubbo. And last... Monday, when total cases in Western New South Wales were still under 100, it was reported that a, quote, vast majority of those cases were among Aboriginal people, with 40% of those cases being among Indigenous kids aged 10 to 19. So basically, remote Indigenous communities are now at direct risk of COVID outbreaks for, as far as I know, really the first time during the pandemic. Um, So this is extra concerning because there are really low vaccination rates among some of these communities. Uh, uh, with the indigenous population in Western New South Wales is one of the least vaccinated groups in the country. Only around 8% of Aboriginal people 16 and over are fully vaccinated uh, against roughly 16% of Western New South Wales as a whole. So, you know, the low compared to the country, low compared to the region. Uh, And further to that, indigenous vaccination rates are behind the state average in every single state in Australia bar Victoria where around 50% of the 16 and over Indigenous population is vaxxed versus just over 25% of the total population. Um, And the reason why uh, Victoria is ahead of all the other states, and this is from a Guardian article, Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organization Public Health Medical Officer Dr. John Gillies said the high uptake was because Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organization's worked in partnership with the state's health department to deliver the vaccine rollout. The strong uptake has been assisted by a high number of vaccines being administered statewide through Aboriginal community-controlled health organizations, with 17 organizations now administering Pfizer as well as AstraZeneca, Gilly said. Um, and so that that's really in line with a story that we spoke about about a month ago during NIDOT week about the remote community of Manangrida which is uh, up in Arnhem Land, which broke the Northern Territory record right, for most yeah. vaccines administered in a single day by a clinic. And a crucial element of that story is that it's one of only three 
local Indigenous health services in the Northern Territory that is fully community controlled. So the pattern that we see again and again, and I'm sure I'm standing like a broken record on this show at this point by making this, you know, repeating this so often, but Indigenous-led and Indigenous-controlled health solutions get better results for Indigenous people basically every fucking time. Yeah. So let's compare that to the response to the current threat to New South Wales Indigenous communities that the federal government is taking. The federal government is deploying five Australian Defence Force VAX teams, which are 14 member teams with medics and nurses and, quote, unquote, logistics specialists who are going to be based out of Dubbo, which, um, I don't know, there's something so euphemistically um, sinister about that term to me. But uh, the Federal Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt, blamed, uh, quote, frightened family members for spreading the virus from urban areas to remote communities. He claims that the required vaccines are available, Okay, but low numbers in the uh, of vaccine take up is due to hesitancy within Indigenous communities. This is what he's saying. Oh wait, so, so he's 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 saying it's not his fault. He's saying it's a hundred percent not his fault. It's not the government's fault. It's oh, the thank fact God that people for that. Were worried. Yeah, I was worried for a Phew. second. Let's all mop our brow and move on. Uh, but you know, if that's true and there is hesitancy in vaccine take up in these communities, then to quote Labor's Indigenous Affairs spokesperson Linda Burney. Surely that is about communication, making sure the right messages are coming from the right people. And again, using Manangrida as the blueprint for a successful vaccine rollout in a remote community, culturally appropriate communication was vital there. They spoke, community leaders spoke about how communicating with people in language was really, really important, that there were trusted community leaders brought on board and elders kind of talking about how important this was and really close collaboration with health experts on that. So sending in the army seems to me to be pretty much the fucking opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, not to catastrophize, but it's hard not to see echoes of the Northern Territory intervention in this to me, because it's not just like these vaccination teams that the ADF is sending in. ADF personnel are being sent, and they're in Dubbo at the moment, to assist police in compliance tasks, which noon as you yeah. just described, in Western Sydney takes the form of repeated harassment at people's houses by cops. They replace those cops with fucking people in army fatigues. Like, it's, I don't know, it, it, it seems very, very ham-fisted uh, and um, an unconsidered response to this. I've got a quote here from uh, a press release from the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal, Legal Service. We know that fines can and do lead to the further entrenchment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the justice system, and we hold grave concerns about the ongoing impacts of COVID-19 policing on the over-incarceration of our people and real risk of transmission and deaths in custody for mob currently in prison. And that's not like an abstract proposition at this point. This week, there was an outbreak at Silverwater Jail in Western Sydney which is so fucking dangerous. Mm. Like COVID in prisons, as we've spoken about, you know, the the level of risk is multiplied so many times, not to mention just how much harder restrictions have made everyday life in prison, which we saw with the prison protest at Park Lee uh, a couple of weeks ago, which is also in Western Sydney. I think one of the kind of, I don't know what the right adjective to use here is, saddest uh, things about COVID is that it, really finds like the weak points in society, like people who are disadvantaged, 
people who aren't from a position of strength and that's who it like seems to target and affect the worst like people who have poor health people who have poor finances people in marginalized communities uh people who for one reason or another have a terrible relationship with the government they seem to be the ones who are like in the most danger and have been consistently suffering the most yeah i think that's true but i also think that you know all of the things that you just said were true long before the coronavirus came around uh it's just that it has painted it much more starkly and visibly for a lot of people and like um the poorest people have always been the ones who are most likely to die from flu or from any other communicable diseases and disabled people have been discriminated against constantly in australia and, and of course indigenous people and like yeah the coronavirus is just like really highlighted those differences in a like literal life and death kind of way that nearly everyone can see now but yeah and there's yeah. also this much more explicit uh and immediate uh government intervention so you mm. know like oh okay covid is spreading to uh covid is spreading in large largely uh middle eastern local government areas in sydney let's send in the army covid is spreading to western new south wales to remote communities let's send in the army whereas you know compare that to the you know very 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 different response in affluent areas in sydney in particular is the comparison that's often drawn it's like you know you can see the completely uh the completely biased and unequal response from the government happening like in real time. Mm, so yeah, mm. it, it does or make the jobkeeper thing yes, as well. Yep. Yeah, and then on the flip side of that, the things that seem to have worked the best when fighting COVID have been the things that have like gone to the root of these, I guess you'd say that problems of equality. Yeah. Like the generous financial support, getting homeless people off the streets, finding trusted community leaders and taking mm. the time to do like genuine grassroots outreach. Mm. And when they do these things and they work, it's great, but it's also a bit infuriating. It's like, wait, you're oh, saying you we could have been this doing this shit yep. all the time. Yep. Oh, once in a lifetime level of debt. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, oh, you could have done this anytime. Okay, cool. Yeah. No, uh, I think, and look, this situation in Western New South Wales, I think, is just yeah another stark example in a long line of them throughout this uh, this pandemic. Mm. All right, noon. Why don't we now move on to Fashy Australia? Yeah, I mean, we should just have that as our sting for every segment. But um, it is it's it's fascism all the way down. Uh, Two refugees are suing the Australian government for illegally imprisoning them on Nauru as children. Um, they're now in immigration prison in Brisbane, which they say in some ways is even worse than Nauru, which is... Wow. Wild. That's very um, wild. It, yeah, one of them said something like, we were in a big cage and now we're in a small cage or something. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so this is from an Al Jazeera article by Zoe Osborne, who's been doing a bunch of good reporting um, this week on a variety of things. Uh, the cases are just two of a series of upcoming hearings regarding refugees sent into Australia's offshore detention system as unaccompanied minors. The refugees' lawyers allege that when the now young men were sent to Nauru, current Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who was the Minister for Immigration and Border Protection at the time, failed to complete an essential piece of paperwork that would have made their detention legal. 
The law says they're transitory persons. That's why we need to detain them, said one of the lawyers. We're saying they're not transitory persons because they should never have actually gone to Nauru in the first place. So, okay, not entirely sure about all of that, but it seems like a lot of their argument rests on the fact that for children in immigration detention, the relevant minister has, quote, the same rights, powers, duties, obligations, and liabilities as a natural, gu- uh, as a natural guardian of the child would have. So I think what they're going to argue is that uh, the minister, who is Scott Morrison in the case of these two people, was criminally neglectful or abusive by exposing them to repeated violence and trauma and racial Mm. abuse and malnutrition and failing to supply adequate mental and physical health care and so on, but not entirely clear on that. And um, I just wanted to finish this brief um, story, which, you know, the the story is they're suing them and we'll see what's up. Um, But... um, Australia is really one of the only countries in the world that mandates imprisoning children who try to come here as refugees. This is not normal. And so, you know, listeners may remember the still happening children in immigration prison in the United States along the southern border of the United States um, Mm. being separated from their parents and put in cages. Um, But the United States literally copied us. And so this is from an article by Matilda Dixon Smith, which was a really good read. Um, horrifying, but, uh, what, what, um, what outlet was that in? Uh, goat. Yeah. Not my preferred source, but Matilda Dixon Smith seems good. Yeah. The reporting, if the reporting's good, the reporting's good. Yeah. Regardless of which animal it's coming from. Why haven't you let them out? Why have you not let them into your society? Donald Trump asked this question of Malcolm Turnbull over the phone in mid-2017. The call concerned a deal where the U.S. would accept Australia's interred asylum seekers, which Turnbull was afraid Trump would renege on. Okay, Turnbull responded, I'll explain why. Turnbull proceeded to explain Australia's unique offshore detention policy and to feed Trump the Liberals' long-held party line about stopping the boats, allegedly to deprive people smugglers of, quote, product to export from desperate circumstances to our supposedly boundless plains. At the end of his pitch, Trump uttered three troubling sentences. That is a good idea. We should do that too. You're worse than I am. I'd like to say I hope that really stuck with Malcolm Turnbull and shook him to his core, hearing Trump say, you are worse than I am. Uh, But I know it didn't, because he's a fucking smug piece of shit. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. When he's out there piloting his yacht, sipping from a long-stem flute of Prosecco. (laughs) I hope you fucking choke on it, Malcolm. (laughs) <laughs> that Trump praised him once. Yeah. Oh yeah, single tear is good too. Choking or single tear, either way. But look, that is maybe not a bad segue into what is going to be our final segment this week. Um, we're going to have uh, attempt to have a bit of a conversation about the situation in Afghanistan and specifically, uh, you know, how it relates to Australian politics. Um, and Lou, we've given you the perhaps unenviable task of um, uh, trying to describe uh, the the history there. But, you know, before we get into this, I guess we wanted to just recognize the limitations of our perspectives here. You know, we're three miscellaneous white guys. Uh, we don't have any particular special insight on this topic. And, of course, we have spent our entire lives marinating in the cesspit of western liberal media so you know it's not it's it basically impossible for us to have not absorbed at least a degree of bias when doing that but 
we're going to try largely to like limit the scope of the conversation to you know how it relates to australia what our role was you know and what we should be doing uh but you know we do also need to lay a little bit of kind of historical groundwork you know before we get into that conversation as well so uh lou do you want to kind of jump in with a little bit of that context yeah, so uh, welcome to our Afghanistan segment, which in my notes I've called the last plane out of Sydney hasn't even taken off because we're incompetent and callous pricks. Um, TLDR, and, yep. Uh, just uh, reiterate, yes, we are three white boys uh, and our perspective is obviously limited. The disclaimer I wrote seemed to put a lot of importance on the fact that two out of three of us are giving this report from Backyard Sheds. So... Uh, I hadn't considered that, but that is true. Yeah, uh, listener, guess which one of us isn't in a shed? The answer may surprise you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yeah, so, and as part of that disclaimer is the history and the events that we recount here obviously are going to be limited and simplified. If you want with this stuff, you can really go back hundreds of years. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason that we wanted you to do this was that a couple of people approached me and Zach being like, hey, what the fuck is up with Afghanistan? Uh, And one person said to me, like, I tried reading a Wikipedia article, but then I had to read six other Wikipedia (laughs) articles. And then each of them I had to read six other ones. So yes, hopefully we can minimize the number of Wikipedia articles that you have to read uh, somewhat. Um, And I guess the... Other disclaimer I kind of want to make when talking about the Afghan war is I want to address and then move past the whole criticism of like, we should have never been there. Military interventions are bad. Military adventurism is bad. Mm -hmm. Um, All of those things are true. But it's kind of too late. Well, I feel like a lot of the leftist criticism begins and ends there. And that to me is kind of a problem because it almost lets our leaders off the hook. Mm. It's like it should have never happened. And that's the criticism. And that sidesteps all of the failures that have happened since and all of the uniquely broken things about our governments that have led to such an awful, awful outcome in this. Mm. Mm. Um, so if you yeah, say like, oh, we shouldn't have been there, or another permutation is like, there's just something about the geography and the demographics right, right. of Afghanistan that you know made this outcome inevitable. Mm. Um, I think it's important to kind of reject that because if you don't, you're like, ignoring all of the awful, awful things our government did and the very unique ways in which we failed. Mm. Right. Yeah, I think uh, it's a really good point. Yeah. Uh, so with all of our disclaimers out of the way, I guess we should do the background history. Uh, you can go back to the great game with Britain um, and Russia where they're vying in uh, Afghanistan for influence, uh, which is incidentally where Dr. Watson got shot. Right. Uh, And so that's in like the 1850s or something. Yeah. Um, You could go to the Soviet um, invasion and then the, I'm sure the, you know, factoid that everyone knows is America were in cahoots with what would then go on to become the Taliban during the Soviet invasion in the 70s and 80s. See also Rocky 2. See three. uh, 
Rambo three, three but Rambo three. <laughs> wow, Rocky Rambo, <laughs> Superman, and no, it's Rambo. Rocky four where he fights the Soviet super soldier, but that's also a different thing. The brave Mujahideen <laughs> fighters of Afghanistan is that Rambo three? That and is all, Rambo also, three, not Rocky fabulous. four. Yeah, fabulous. and it also didn't happen. The, I know it didn't. Fine. I know it didn't happen, but yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fine. Um, but for today's discussion, we'll kind of pretend this starts in two thousand and one. Uh, what happened then? What, well, what did happen then? Uh, so obviously the September 11 attacks were in 2001. Uh, at the time, most of Afghanistan was being controlled by the Taliban, uh, which something I think a lot of people miss is that sections of it were actually not under effective Taliban rule, uh, just due to insurgency. And the fact that the Taliban, when they were in government, were having trouble with an insurgency kind of signposts some of the problems that are going to come later. Yeah, well. um, the US attributes the attacks to groups who have been allowed to operate in Afghanistan and as, I guess, punishment or revenge or whatever you want to say, they invade Afghanistan, topple the Taliban um, and attempt to drive out uh, Al-Qaeda and other linked groups. So that's where our... Uh, modern engagement with Afghanistan begins. Um, and after the Taliban were overthrown, uh, there was kind of a bit of a, a what next. Um, and after some faffing about the mission evolved to setting up a government modeled on Western systems and values uh, which would then be able to provide security to Afghanistan and prevent the Taliban from swanning back into power. Which all went great, right? Which all went great. And at the heart of this new strategy, there's basically two core problems. Um, problem number one is that the Taliban can't really be defeated uh, in a kind of conventional military sense. Mm. They're an amorphous group. Uh, the ethnic area, which they're native to, uh, sits across the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, they can move freely across the border. They're also happy to sit and wait. And at various times in this conflict where, you know, things have been going too great for them or the conditions have been very difficult, they're happy to sit and chill. Mm. So they've just like called off war for a year until things shift a bit and it's going to be worth fighting again. Yeah, I mean, and as things sit in Afghanistan, there are fighting seasons uh, because of how right, rugged right. it is. Uh, you can't really fight in winter in large parts of it. So this idea of like sitting and waiting and putting away your guns and then springing up is like very, I don't know, kind of native to the region. Mm. Um, and this was known right from the beginning. So problem number one, you can't have a pitched battle with the Taliban and defeat them. Problem number two is that the Afghan government was inc that we set up was incredibly, incredibly corrupt. Uh, and um, go on, sorry. Oh, I'm just curious about why. Like, that doesn't surprise me at all, but I don't, like... I think it Was mirrors it? A, a lot of the problems that you see in any kind of Western-led international development, in quotes, 
where they basically, you know, send money to a country and mm. almost all of that will just get, will stay at the top level of the bureaucracy and not trickle down, right. surprising nobody who understands anything about capitalism. So, yeah, we've got this strategy of establishing a stable government and then withdrawing our troops and then they can keep the Taliban at bay. And there were two, two massive problems underneath that strategy. Um, but those problems might have been able to be addressed. But there's one really key issue that stopped people from addressing them effectively and that is really right from the beginning. There was heavy political pressure from the top that prevented these problems from being acknowledged. And this mm. begins in the Bush era um, and continues into the Obama and then Trump era. Um, so people have gotten access to Donald Rumsfeld, who was the, um, the Secretary of Defense for the initial invasion. Um, and they've gotten access to his memos and it's really clear that they had a heavy, heavy emphasis on spin right from the beginning. His memos show him asking people to like kind of fudge the statistics. And then mm. when they do, he says, this is a brilliant piece. How do we use it? Should it be an article, an op-ed piece, a handout, a press briefing, all of the above? I think it ought to get to a lot of people. Um, an unnamed source from the National Security Council says the same thing happened um, under the Obama era, where there was constant pressure from the White House and the Pentagon to produce figures to show that the strategy was working, mm. despite hard evidence to the contrary. And the most quelling, telling quote I found from this anonymous official was, it was impossible to create good metrics. We tried using troop numbers trained, violence levels, control of territory, and none of it painted an accurate picture. Um, a retired army colonel who was a counterinsurgency advisor says, the truth was rarely welcome. Bad news was stifled. When we tried to l air larger strategic concerns about the willingness, capacity, or corruption of the Afghan government, it was clear it wasn't welcome. We can continue. Uh, every data point was altered to present the best possible picture. Um, surveys were totally unreliable, but in reinforced everything we were doing was right. And we became a self-licking ice cream cone. Wow. Um, uh, that's the technical military jargon. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then one of the most damning ones is Donald Rumsfeld himself writing, we are never going to get the US out of Afghanistan unless we take care to see that something is going on that will provide the stability that will be necessary for us to read dot, 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 help, exclamation mark. And that was written in 2002. Mm. Wow. Um, so, so it's clear that basically this was effectively an unachievable mission or an unwinnable war, however you want to describe it. This was apparent to everybody within the military and the top brass and also known at the highest political levels, but was denied for political expediency because it looks really bad to go into a country like Afghanistan as, quote unquote, the world's most powerful military and basically completely fail almost immediately. Well, the mission as we defined it 
to make sure. this government who could hold the Taliban at bay, that was always going to fail. And yeah, as those quotes have been reading out, read, they knew for pretty much from the beginning that under those terms, it was impossible. Uh, another quote um, from an, the ambassador to Afghanistan uh, our special forces can clear in an area, but the police, that is the Afghan police, can't, cannot hold it. Not because they're outgunned or outmanned, it is because they are useless as a security force, and they're useless as a security force because they are corrupt down to the patrol level. Mm. Of all the painful lessons I carry out of my time, it's the corruption at every level that is the starkest point. Um, so the mission as they defined it and by extension, as Australia defined it was always going to fail, but this pressure from the top prevented there being like both internally and externally, a real acknowledgement of that. Um, and then not only do they continue, uh, to pursue this mission, that's always going to fail, but a lot of the actions they do take it, make it worse. Um, so I mentioned before that they were always on the hunt for statistics that sh would show that things were working, that the mm -hmm. war was going well. And they decided that one kind of statistic they could trumpet was like the amount of aid and development going on in Afghanistan. Uh, things are getting better because we've built 200 schools and 300 bridges and, and IMAX and an aquarium and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so they leapt on the statistic they could have and uh, put like the aid projects on turbocharge. Um, and which obviously made the corruption worse. That made there was a lot more money going in. Yeah. Aid workers told government interviewers it was a colossal misjudgment akin to pumping kerosene on a dying campfire just to keep the flame alive. Um, we lost objectivity. We were given money, told to spend it, um, and we did without reason. And now we have the former uh, uh, diplomat to Kabul speaking again. Our biggest single project, sadly and inadvertently, may have been the development of mass corruption. Mm. Um, <laughs> Which is obviously bleak. going to like really oh. endear you to the Afghan people. Yeah. Um, and remember that quote I had a few minutes ago about the uh, the police being useless as a security force because mm. uh, they're corrupt down to the patrol level. What's incredibly galling is the discrepancy between these private candid comments. And the type of comments that are being made publicly mm. to the press um, and I guess to the people. So round about the time he was saying that corrupt down to a patrol level, uh, Lieutenant General Mark A. Malley saying in a press conference from uh, Kabul, this army and police force has been very, very effective in combat against the insurgents every single day. And I think that's an important story to be told right across the board. Um, and then another general wow. says in private a uh, year or two later, from the ambassadors down to a low level, uh, we set, they all say we're doing a great job. If we're doing such a great job, why does it feel like we're losing? 
They all say when they left, they accomplished that, their mission. Every single commander. No commander leaves Afghanistan and says, you know what? We didn't accomplish our mission. Um, and yeah. while we're talking about like mis the kind of misuse of statistics or uh, statistics being fudged or trying to find statistics that uh, paint the conflict in a good light, uh, another former diplomat says, I think the key benchmark is the one I've suggested, which is how many Afghans are getting killed. If that number's going up, you're losing. If that number's going down, you're winning. It's as simple as that. And if you phrase the conflict in those terms, it's been going worse and worse the entire time. Yeah. Um, so what I think is really striking about this, like, pressure to lie and to distort things and to put on a brave face publicly is that it's not just you're telling lies to peop to the people and the press, which, you know, is fucked, but you're telling lies internally and you're preventing yourself from taking measures or adopting a strategy that might lead to a less disastrous outcome. Mm. Um, so people, you know, are like, oh, it's the geography of Afghanistan and it's, you know, the government being corrupt and the Taliban being impossible to defeat. So obviously this was going to happen. But that ignores how, like, blindly... Well, not blindly, because we knew what was willfully. happening. How willfully we pursued a losing strategy. Um, and uh, it's, some people have pointed out that all right, if we, you know, accepted these things um, and took them into consideration, why not start a peace process with the Taliban back when we had 150,000 troops in the yeah. country yeah. instead of desperately trying to do one when we had 3,000? Um, so I guess that's, like, really my hot take. Yes, military intervisionism is bad. Yes, we should have never been there. Uh, but I think if we valued truth in government agencies and in our political process, if we had systems to hold people who lie to account, if the media did their job properly, even in the scenario of an invasion that should have never happened, a better outcome could have been reached. Mm. Um, and I think that's like, yeah, this one of like the saddest and most disturbing, um, aspects of this, um, to bring it around to an Australian perspective and the things that like Australia, um, has done wrong or like how this affects us, um, having this like delusion and deception about our mission and our strategy I think has led to the like mistakes or crimes that Australia has committed. Um, because if our strategy was never going to work and we were going to stay in this war for as long as America did, we're committing ourselves to a forever war. And if we're not like upfront about that, um, and if we don't think critically about that, 
then some of the really nasty things that have happened with Australian soldiers are um, kind of an inevitable consequence. So for quite a long time, our combat contingent has been a relatively small group of men. Um, we have made an effort to keep our like specialist troops on the front lines. Um, and that means the SAS and the commandos. And they're relatively small groups. Um, the best number I can get for the SAS is 700 soldiers. But I think the uh, cohort that would have been in Afghanistan's a lot smaller than that. And I think the commandos sit at around 900. But again, the cohort who actually goes to Afghanistan's a lot smaller. Um, and because the lies and deception put us into this forever war, we're in a situation where we're going to send a very, very small group of people to a dangerous part of the world for an unspecified period of time with really no unspecified goal. And then we like turn around and look shocked when we discover that they've turned rancid. Mm. Like it's, I can't think of a more perfect um, environment for radicalizing people. Um, which I think is a fair enough way to describe what happened with our soldiers and the mm. crimes they committed um, and mm. the way they were able to treat Afghan civilians. Mm. Um, yeah, it's really terrifying <laughs> when you put it like that. I mean, yeah. yeah, there is this, I think this is what you're getting at before. There's this instinct uh, that I definitely have being, being like, well, yeah, of course, you know, these guys are literally trained to kill people they're trained to operate with relative autonomy and they have been stewing as i put it before in in a cesspit of racist rhetoric that has been definitely amplified i'm sure within the ranks of the military what did you think was going to happen but as you say like it didn't have to be anywhere near as bad yeah and then yeah the like um the sudden collapse of um, the Afghan government in the last week, people knew there was a very strong risk of that happening, but there wasn't an effective strategy to deal with it because fundamentally that truth could not be acknowledged yeah. at like the levels of decision-making where it needed to be acknowledged. And I think this process of spin and fudging statistics and refusing to have candid conversations, both publicly and at high levels of government, really seems to illustrate a lot of what's gone wrong with governance in the West lately. Mm. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, You're right. It, it's starkly reminiscent of especially Trump's, like, COVID approach, um, but also Boris Johnson's and, and yeah... Um, just all sorts of things that closing the gap, even, you know, like the government is like, Oh yeah, yeah. We're working really hard in all these things. And like all of the numbers keep getting worse and worse and worse. And they're like, closing the gap, closing the gap. Um, and like, they just can't yeah. listen to the truth that would let them develop good policy. Yeah. Closing the gap, the war on drugs, um, entrenched poverty and disadvantage. Like there is, answers there there's expertise that can be used mm. 
but because truth telling has been so devalued in our governments, the expertise and those answers aren't being heard or implemented at the high levels. Yep. And it's, it is yeah, really it's... bracing to like, you know, this analysis, not that you're giving at the moment. I mean, it's not really that retrospective. Like these are things that have been said pretty explicitly by certain quarters, especially on the left and by experts, you know, that this is, you know, that for example, the collapse of the Afghan government uh, in the absence of uh, U.S. military presence was all but inevitable. Like, people were, you know, it, it it happened in like 10 days. And, you know, U.S. military estimates were like, oh, Kabul might hold for three months three or months. whatever. So yeah. it happened faster than they expected. But I think basically this was the expected and predicted outcome. And so it's being said. It's out there. These, like, you know. I mean, this say, is this is probably the thing that, like, hurt me the most to read. So this is another American general, um, Barry McCaffrey. And this is what he was quoted as saying. All these quotes, incidentally, um, come from an internal review that the US government did that the Washington Post then got their hands on. So this is this US general. The Afghan national leadership are collectively terrified that we will tiptoe out of Afghanistan um, and the whole thing will collapse again into mayhem. Mm. Guess when he wrote that? 2001? <laughs> uh, 2006. Oh, okay. Yes. I, I hate it when you do the guess I, thing. I always the, over... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People always like, guess how much this uh, thing was? And I was like, um, $2. $12? And they were like, well, no, it was 65 but that's still a huge discount. You know, yeah, yeah. And then to kind of segue into what my final point uh, is going to be talking about... Uh, the Australian betrayal of our allies on the ground. Uh, one of the reasons we claim that we've failed to uh, provide aid to people who assisted us is that, you know, we were taken by surprise at the speed of the collapse. That assessment was made in 2006. Mm. Um, but because it can't be acknowledged and actioned at the right levels of leadership, we're quote unquote, taken by surprise, uh, which yeah, does lead us, I guess, to our final point here, which is our absolutely despicable acts of cowardness and treason uh, to our Afghan allies and partners on the ground. Yeah, I think this is probably the main thing that people will have been seeing in Australian media around mm. this is you know, our complete failure to uh, get people who helped us in Afghanistan out of the country. And, you know, Western media has been whipped up into this frenzy over these quite genuinely shocking images coming out of, you know, the Kabul airport of, you know, all these people sort of desperate to flee, basically fearing Taliban reprisals for having uh, collaborated with the invading forces. But yeah, I mean, there are basically all these people now there in that country who helped us when we were there and are now in danger because they helped us and we have all but completely abandoned them. Um, which, of course, is... Yeah, I mean... Go on. I, I feel like all but completely abandoned is almost selling what we've done short. Um, apparently, um, in a few months ago when things were starting to heat up... Uh, Afghan interpreters who had worked with us 
were complaining that they had been given like the generic refugee application form. Yeah. Right. Which is like wow. 54 pages and in English. Um, and as my partner who used to work at the ASRC points out is specifically designed to like be impossible to fill out and pass. Yeah. yeah. For instance, you have to list every residence you've ever had and you've got to list them all in the Western address format. And Jesus if Christ. you say like the hut behind the big bend in the yellow river, it's just like computer says no and your application gets rejected. Um, so like Yikes. our failure to protect and assist this people um, can't be overstated. And it does also stand in contrast with uh, some of our uh, military partners like America and Britain who have also failed on this front but have made a concerted effort and uh, Britain's, I think it was their defense secretary, broke down crying on TV uh, when he was, you know, made to concede by an interviewer that people were going to get left behind and be in mortal peril. And he was asked why, and he, why he was crying. And he said, because he felt ashamed. Um, and I can't really think of a good explanation as to why we are so different from Britain mm. and America in this front on the subject of radicalizing, maybe we've radicalized our department of immigration or border mm. force as it's now known for so long to like keep people out and treat people with contempt and suspicion that they're incapable of providing aid. Yeah. 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 Well, as noon was saying in the previous segment, you know, we are literally world leaders that are looked to by other far right governments across the world as a shining beacon of how best to imprison to and refugees, immiserate yeah. refugees who have come to us for help. And this, you know, com this total, you know, as you, and as you've pointed out just now, Lou, like this, not just lack of support, but active uh, impeding of uh, stopping, you know, our, our Afghan allies getting support from us is a direct continuation of our pre-existing refugee policies that are explicitly designed to keep people out of the country. And, you know, you mentioned Noon in the previous segment, our current prime minister was the immigration minister and people who were imprisoned under his watch eight years ago are still in immigration detention. And now that's the person leading the country. You've got a per the person in charge of uh, defense you know, and our kind of foreign policy outlook slandering the people who worked for us as well. Peter Dutton has basically been suggesting that people who helped us on the ground in Afghanistan may have shifted their alliance to the Taliban or whatever, because he is literally the most fucking disgusting human being imaginable. His, well, yeah, re mean his rhetoric on that was just absolutely foul. Uh, the quote that really stuck with me was, describing our Afghan allies as males of fighting age. Yeah, what the fuck? We've wow. got to be careful about letting males of fighting age into our country. It's like, what, what you mean the people who helped us out on a battlefield are males of fighting age? Like, yeah. no fucking shit. Well, you know, I think really, even though I know how bad Australia is, and as you say, Zach, that we're world leaders in racist border policy, but, like, 
I think, indicative of that is that I'm kind of shocked at you saying that the British and American response to these, you know, people who've been supporting Western troops there is better than Australia. Because, like, I just assume everyone's completely, absolutely fucked. But... No, we stand um, out. But we've we've also been doing it the whole time. Like it's not just now that the government is collapsing. Yeah. But the whole time that we've been at war with the Taliban, there's been ref- Ooh, sorry, man. there's been um, refugees coming here from Afghanistan, from ethnic minorities, uh, from you know women, queer people, um, and we've been like, yeah, sorry, we did kind of destabilize your country and cause a massive war that means that you can't survive there anymore, but. You're not really a refugee as such, are you? Maybe you just languish in jail for a decade. Um, and, like, why wouldn't we do that with the people that we literally employed and worked with? You know, like, yeah. I think you make an interesting point, Noon, about the it feeling somehow surprising that the US and the UK are, while still abjectly failing on this, are doing better than Australia. Low mm. fucking bar to clear. But mm. I think that tells us a lot about what the kind of political reality has been shaped to be in this country that this Mm. like oh this automatic and enthusiastic demonization and rejection of taking care of people who Mm. weren't born Mm. here is just like like, oh yeah but that's just how governments are well even some of the other worst fucking imperialist powers in the globe aren't as bad as us but it's like that has been the dominant political rhetoric and like you know, you can trace it back really to kind of, I mean, as you know, the where wherever you, you know, as you were said at the beginning of this segment, Lou, you know, pick your starting point. There are so many different things that influence this. But like, you yeah. yeah, you know, John Howard coming into power, deliberately trying to, to split one nation's supporter base by being extra racist and then being the prime minister that led us into Afghanistan in the first place. Obviously, that's not a fucking coincidence. This is the result of like of a decades long political project to make racism, xenophobia and hard borders just uh, like a bipartisan political reality. Mm. And, you know, it's just like I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed to live in this country. I'm so ashamed of our political leaders. I'm so ashamed that we followed the United States into this disgusting, racist, imperialist garbage and it's, as you say, Lou, it's traceable back to our leaders and their complete inability to look reality in the face, let alone deal with it. And, like, there is so much blood and so much misery on the heads of the people that lead our country. And it's really quite, it makes me feel a bit like I'm losing my grip on reality. It's all just there in black and white. And... You know, what What can you do but sit back and fucking clutch your hair, you know, and watch what's unfolding in Afghanistan and just, you know, the, the pain, so much pain. And, you know, like, I think part of the rationale of making a show like this is that it helps to process some of the, like, mind-boggling awfulness to try and unpick what are some of the practical reasons for it. But at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, it, it, I mean, I don't know. I find it extraordinarily difficult to process. I think is that's probably clear from this rambling sentence, but I don't know. Well, I you know, it's hard to know what kind of constructive summary we can take from this beyond, you know, your point Lou about, you know, the the devaluing of truth and politics, but I mean, how is that 
what way forward is there? Well, I don't know about a way forward, but I thought it might be instructive to take a look back for a second. Um, and you just mentioned, you know, our previous colonial uh, adventures and support of imperial powers. Mm. And I thought it might be very telling to talk about another invasion of a faraway place that we've been involved in in the past. Uh, do you mind if we if we take a quick detour? Sure. All right. We are back in 1885, and our topic of conversation is the New South Wales-Sudan War. Okay. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, did, did, what the fuck? Did you guys know that uh, New South Wales went to war against Sudan? I didn't know New South Wales could go to war. I guess it, it wasn't part of a country then, so... Pre-Federation. Yeah. Uh, so, Britain was backing an Egyptian regime that was uh, invading or controlling or occupying uh, Sudan. And the occupiers were attacked by an indigenous rebellion um, and they were defeated and the survivors, the Egyptian survivors, were stranded in Sudan. And it was very difficult to evacuate the survivors. So the Egyptians asked the British to send a British general to go and evacuate their survivors. The thinking being that the Sudanese rebels wouldn't want to attack a British contingent because it belongs to a major imperial power. Um, and therefore the Egyptian troops could be safely withdrawn. So that is the original mission. Doesn't involve Australia at this point, but to send a British general to Sudan to evacuate some uh, Egyptian troops. Now, stop me when this starts sounding familiar, uh, but the British general, uh, once he was on the ground, Charles Gordon, seemingly ignored his orders to effect an evacuation and decided that while he was there, he might as just well simplify the whole situation and defeat the Sudanese rebels. Uh, so this is, I believe, what we now refer to in the modern context as mission creep. Mm -hmm. uh, like the Egyptians before him, the British general failed and found himself besieged in a city. And the like popular press stirred up a lot of support for this trap general and said we must dispatch a force for his rescue. New South Wales then enters the scene and... Terrible sentence in this context. <laughs> offers out of, you know, I don't know if patriotic duty is quite the right word, imperialistic duty mm -hmm. uh, to send its own, to send troops to help out. Um, and apparently the British were kind of like, a bit so-so about this. So in an like utterly embarrassing move, we're like, okay, but we'll pay for everything and we'll put our troops under your command. Uh, and after we had agreed to debase ourselves that thoroughly, um, the British were like, sure. Okay. Fine. If you must. Um, and like, High ups in the New South Wales government and society 
were really enthusiastic about this because they saw it as like, you know, New South Wales doing its bit and the good old colonies off to fight an imperial war. Somewhat interestingly, it seems that the mood amongst the working classes uh, was fiercely opposed. Um, the like nationalism of it was widely ridiculed. Mm. Um, attempts to like s- get funds from unions and working class groups uh, were fiercely opposed and like I think kind of booed and jeered. Um, so New South Wales gets its shitty little army. We send it there. Uh, by the time we arrive, uh, the British general has been uh, captured and decapitated by the Indigenous rebels. The fighting's pretty much done. The Australians stand around. They go looking for a fight. They can't find anyone to fight. They end up building a railway for some reason. Uh <laughs> They accidentally injure themselves, attempting to go and find someone to fight. Um, And finally, they uh, decide to pull up stumps and head home. One man having died of typhoid in the meanwhile. Um, And they arrive to back in Sydney, march through the city in pouring rain, and stand there while the governor and the premier give speeches. Uh, so that's in 1885. <laughs> and yeah, when I stumbled across this story, uh, I was just struck by just how low rent and servile and dinky we are. And the numerous parallels that can be drawn to our more recent military adventures. Mm. Uh, And so when you ask Zach, what can we learn from this moving forwards? If we haven't learned a lesson in the last 140 years, I don't know if we're going to now. Well, that's pretty grim. But thanks. Uh, uh, Thank you for both of those little stories, Lou, the uh, Afghan and the Sudan one. Very informative and um, troubling, but yeah, thank you for your perspective on them. I think it's very unique and refreshing uh, compared to what I've been reading in the news and the the hot take factories online. So yeah, thank you so much for putting in that work for that research and and thinking about it and telling us about it. It's amazing. No worries. Thanks for having us on. I mean, obviously the war isn't amazing, but I enjoyed listening to you tell me about it. Positivity Corner. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, Positivity Corner. We got Lou on. Yeah. Um, which, does that mean it, it's time for the business, Zach? Yeah, I think that's probably going to do us for the news this week. If you want a podcast, you got to do a lot of shit. But it's not technically podcasting. You still got to do that shit. Lou, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, sorry, no, I, I I didn't find a plug. Sorry about that. That's fine. But you're you're clean and pure. You don't have to debase yourself in the business section yeah, like great. we do. Yeah. Well, we have to get on our hands and knees and and beg people to follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and uh, also to join our Patreon for one dollar a month, bonus episodes, plus other stuff. Listen to us talk about Tony Abbott's new podcast. 
Twitch. And also, uh, come watch me stream games on Twitch. Uh, I'm doing it like three, four days a week at the moment. Hooray, it's twitch.com. Uh, sorry, twitch.tv forward slash noon plays games. If you hit the follow button, you'll get a notification when I play games. Uh, also, go and go and give us a review over on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, uh, we haven't had any for a minute. And that goes for all guests on the show as well as listeners. Uh, hop over to uh, the Elspol Snack Club page on Apple Podcasts. Give us that five stars. We love that. We should just do that in the opening bit whenever we get a guest. So have you left us a review? All right, we're just going to wait <laughs> and make everyone stop right and now. listen to you type a review before we begin. Yeah. Do you have an Apple ID, Lou? A what now? <laughs> Okay. Now it's time for a pub game. Um, Lou, you have a big stinky boy. Uh, I assume you're referring to my dog. <laughs> Mostly, yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Kotcha? Uh, Kotcha is a mongrel uh, of unknown origin. He is a big boy. Uh, he weighs approximately 50 kilos, which is Large for a dog. Mm. I can confirm he is fucking enormous. Very big. One of the biggest dogs you'll ever see, which is great as a companion and friend, but also really irritating if you're wandering around the streets of West Brunswick in a somewhat misanthropic mood and you constantly get stopped and people, oh my God, I've never seen a dog like that. Your dog's so big. I'm like, yeah, I know he's big. Yes, (laughs) I did notice that. (laughs) Funnily enough. Uh, But yeah, he's going good. Uh, he's, He's very affectionate. He's very loyal. He's very sweet. He's in almost entirely mute, which is mm. a strange attribute for a dog to have, but one I don't entirely mind. Mm. Um, I'm a bit worried about him and COVID. Uh, me and my partner work from home in our shed, and he's like definitely gotten very attached to having us around all the time. Mm. Uh, so much like everyone else, I fear this period may have given him a permanent mental illness. <laughs> and uh, Of loving you too much. Mm. Oh, with the love comes the anxiety, you know? One very <laughs> sweet, but because of his size, surprisingly dangerous thing that Kocha does is that he, lo- he, loves, he loves having a pet. He'll come sit next to you. And when he sits next to you and you're sitting down, you're about the same height. Um, but, it, you know, he'll, 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 if you stop patting him, he'll pop his paw onto you just to be like, hey, keep going with that. Just a reminder... I'm Pat still here points. and you stop patting me. Yeah. And so then if you continue to not pat him, he will repeatedly place his paw on you. <laughs> and for most dogs, that's not really an issue. But Coach's paw weighs roughly, you know, 80 kilos. Uh, and it's very, you know, so just like him gently reminding you to pat can cause some severe damage to life and limb. But um, it is adorable. Yeah. Having a 50 kilogram dog like try and compel you to pat him yes is <laughs> it's a touch unsettling he's an experience big Koch. he's a good boy yeah he's a good boy uh i don't think there's much dante news this week he's been a pretty good boy um i think at our last pub date i described how he basically made my life a living hell for a few days mm-hmm. uh and i don't know if he overheard me or what but uh he's been very good for the last week he's been really chill on his walks uh, not doing a lot of barking, Great. and uh, just generally being a pretty pleasant little boy. Um, mm. You know, oh, but you know, I mean, he's like ambiently, he's always a gremlin, always and forever. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, a nice, a nice chill kind of lack of news from Dante this week. 
Yeah, not much with Bagel either. He's been very popular on stream, which has been great. Um, people follow or subscribe, get him to do some tricks, do a little balk, which he kind of resents. Uh, he's like, <laughs> no, you, you hate it when I balk. Stop making me balk. But uh, anyway, yes, that's been very sweet. Mm. But, you know, people hype for Bagel. It's, yes. That's very, nice. very cute. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for sticking with us if you've made it this far. Uh, thank you very much to Lou for coming onto the show and doing all that research into Yeah, thanks, bud. Well, I mean, it's a deeply, deeply complex issue. There's so many different kinds of uh, perspectives, and obviously we have a very specific one. You know, uh, I think uh, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about Afghanistan this week, and I'll put a few in the show notes that give perspectives from Afghan people on the ground, uh, which will hopefully give, you know, a more well-rounded view of of the issue. But yeah, cheers so much, Lou, for putting that story together. It was a huge job. Oh, thanks for having me on. It was a, it was a delight. Pleasure. Well, I think that's probably going to do us for this week. Um, we'll have the bonus episode hopefully coming to you within a couple of days of this being published as well. Uh, but until then... Make sure that you keep on snacking in the free world. Being happy brings healthy heart and beauty. Crunch, crunch. Fuck the US imperialist war machine. <laughs>